to death. For putting our hearts in a grave and raising them in Christ. For Father, we were once dead in our trespasses and our sins. We once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. We were disobedient. We lived life according to our own standards and according to our own ways. But Father, we rejoice for you truly are rich in mercy. And you, Father God, according to your divine plan, chose to save us from the foundation of the world. You, Father, drew us to yourself so that we could live through you and for you. For it is in you that we live, that we move, and that we have our being. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this place. Just as we have worshipped you and exalted you through the singing of songs, Father, I pray that now our hearts may be turned to your word to hear it preached. For faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Pray that you would open up the eyes of a person who is dead today, whose heart cannot see you, that you would give them sight, that you would draw them to your glorious son. I pray that you would allow Jesus to be lifted up for He declared if he is lifted up, he will draw all men into himself. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What an incredible time of worship we've had this far. If you could stand to your feet and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll continue in worship. Amen? Praise God for our praise team. Amen. Praise God for Brother Jared giving us that selection. Pray that your week is going well. Amen? And has last week went well, and this week will go well. Amen? What you hold in your hand is not a health, uh, self-help book. It's not some neat little suggestions. It was God-breathed, written by man, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 22, the precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, matchless word of God reads, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessings that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices 
participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You may be seated. As we continue our series Preaching through Paul's epistle, his letter to the church at Corinth, Uh, today we are going to title this passage, the sermon, Eating from the Lord's Table. Eating from the Lord's Table. One of the great statues of Christ is that by the Danish sculptor Bertel Thorvaldsen. After he carved it, he was offered a commission to carve a statue of Venus for the Louvre, the royal palace in London. And his answer was, the hand that carved the form of Christ can never carve the form of a a heathen goddess. The hand that carved the form of Christ can never carve the form of a heathen goddess. Behind his ideal is this. A person cannot love Jesus and love the world at the same time. Scripture bluntly says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We cannot love Jesus in the world at the same time. In fact, maybe this is best exemplified in a man by the name of Demas, a man that Paul wrote about to his understudy, Timothy. And he says these words to Timothy about Demas. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was in love with the present world, so he stopped following Jesus. We can't carve two sculptures. We can't eat from two tables. We have to choose between the Lord's table, and the world's table. At the end of the day, the problem that the church at Corinth was having was an issue of love. Love was at the core of many of their issues. Paul had taught them that they were full of knowledge, but that they lacked love. They knew things about Jesus, and they were able to articulate specific doctrines, but they failed at loving each other. They also was a very gifted church. They had gift galores. They were prophesying. They were speaking in tongues. They were doing many miraculous things. But Paul said 
your love lacks. He says, you all have had great preachers before me. You had Peter, uh, after me, you had Peter, you had Apollos, you had great men of the faith, you had Cephas, but you still lack love. And this was really showing up in the mature Christians of Corinth. Those who were mature were taking their Christian liberty and using it in a way that caused immature Christians to stumble. The issue that they were dealing with in that day was the issue of, uh, an issue of meat. The stronger Christians uh, had no problem with eating meat that had been formerly sacrificed in an idolatrous temple. They would take that meat back home and they would eat it. But those who were once Gentiles or even Jews who still uh, felt like they were sinning against their conscience if they ate meat, they uh, were, were offended. And some of them would eat meat, though they felt like it was a sin. And Paul was trying to tell them in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that if you're really mature in Christ, you would be willing to give up meat in order for your brother in Christ to not have their conscience sinned against. But instead of responding with love, the, the church at Corinth responded with pride. And Paul wants to let them know that as a result of them responding with pride and not loving their brother, that there is a deeper issue, that their lack of love is really stemming from an issue of idolatry. That's what we see in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says, your lack of love, your lack of willing to, willingness to make sacrifices for other people is an issue of idolatry. We see he starts off this verse by saying, therefore. Anytime we read our Bibles and we see therefore, our job is then to find out why is it there? What is it there for? And if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we can see why Paul says this, my, this, this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because in chapter 10, verse 7, he says this to the church at Corinth, do not be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyers. So Paul is saying the reason that you should flee from idolatry is because idolatry ultimately leads us to death. For the wages of sin is death. And even for Christians, when we allow idols to rule us and to reign in our lives, we can actually experience a premature death. What is idolatry? An idol is a person, a thing, an idea, a philosophy that competes with our affections for God. It is anything that we put in the place of God. Richard Keyes has a phenomenal quote. He says, 
An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God. All sorts of things are potential idols, depending only on our attitudes and actions towards them. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, sports or eating. A role, a mother, pastor, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute itself in our hearts for God. A lot of times when we think about idols, we think about maybe other religions such as Hinduism or Buddhism. We think about religions that bow down to handmade statues or that worship the sun, the moon, or animals. But idolatry is much deeper than that. It's much broader than that. And all of us struggle with idols. The great reformer John Calvin says that our idolatry, in fact, that's, that's Martin Luther, John Calvin, excuse me, says that our heart is a factory of idols. It constantly produces things and people and titles and pursuits in the place of God or other than God. But here's a great quote, a longer quote that I want to read to you from a gentleman by the name of David Powlison. And David says this, sometimes the object of desire itself is evil to kill someone, to steal, to control the cocaine trade in Philadelphia. But often the object of our desire is good, and the evil lies in the lordship of the desire. Consider this example. A woman commits adultery and repents. She and her husband rebuild their marriage painstakingly and patiently. Eight months later, the man finds himself plagued with subtle suspicions. The wife senses it and feels a bit like she lives under a FBI surveillance camera. The husband is grieved by his suspicions because he has no objective reasons to be suspicious. He says to himself, I've forgiven her. We've rebuilt our marriage. We've never communicated better. Why do I hold unto this mistrust? What finally emerges is that he is willing to forgive the past, but he is attempting to control the future. His craving could be stated this way. I want to guarantee that betrayal never happens again. The very intensity of his craving starts to poison the relationship. It places him in a stance of continually evaluating and judging his wife rather than loving her. What he wants cannot be guaranteed this side of heaven. He sees the point. He sees his inordinate desire to ensure the future, but he burst out, what's wrong with wanting my wife to love me? What's wrong with wanting her to remain faithful to our marriage? And here is where the truth is so sweet. There's nothing wrong with the object of desire. 
There is everything wrong when that object rules his life. The process of restoring one's love to God, the process of marriage is a long process. And the only way to continue to love one's spouse is to continue to fight against one's idol. It's often not the object of our desire that is wrong. It is us making that object into God. For some of us, our idol is is money. And money itself is not evil. In fact, Solomon said that money answereth all things. In other words, that it can be used to solve many problems. But the problem is when we allow money to rule us. That's why Paul told Timothy the love of money is the root to all evil. In the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, we know that first two commandments deal with idolatry. God tells us that we ought to have no other gods, no more other idols before him. So the question that we have to pose is, what is the antidote to our idolatry? What is the answer to our idolatry? And, and the short answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to an idolatrous heart. The long answer is spiritual disciplines. There are things that we can do to uproot these idols in our heart, like cultivate a a prayer life, one that is constant, a heart that is constantly in communion with God. Cultivate a, a time of seeing Jesus in the scripture by making sure that we're regularly getting into the scripture, by living in community closely with other believers so that they can help us identify idols and help us to turn from idols to Jesus. All of these things help, but that's not what Paul points the church of Corinth to in this text. As he deals with their idolatry, he doesn't point them to specific disciplines, but rather he points them to something that that might shock us. The part of the antidote to idolatry is something that most of us, we rarely think about. And he says, flee from idolatry and run to this. Flee from idolatry and run to this so that Jesus may be the Lord of your heart. What does he tell them to run to? He tells them to run to the Lord's table. He he begins to talk to them about the Lord's Supper. He says, one way that you can help fight against idolatry is by valuing the Lord's table. Now, here is the issue in a nutshell that's going on as Paul is addressing. Not only are these mature Christians eating meat that has been offered to idols, despite it uh, hurting the conscience of weaker brothers and causing them to sin, but some of them were so bold as to they were going back to the idolatrous temple and they were participating in idolatrous uh, festivals. They were going through the worship rituals with pagans. 
And they were saying to themselves, it's okay that we do this because we know that Jesus is Lord. And all we're doing is having a good time. And we know that when we bow to this statue and when we see the sensuality, that, that that's really not the best for our life. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we gather together on Sunday, we'll still be believers. And we can come and take the Lord's Supper and we can cleanse our guilt. Because Jesus really doesn't care about that. As long as we are devoted to him in these particular ways. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them and he's saying, you can't eat from two tables, literally. You can't, in the week, be down at, at, at this temple that is worshiping this goddess and then on Sunday be and eat at, this, at, at, at the Lord's table. He's saying you have to make a choice. It's, it's, a either, it's not either or. It's not both and. It's only one table that you can eat from. So what he does is he begins to teach them about the importance of the Lord's Supper table. He begins to teach them about the importance of of eating only from one table. And here's an issue that I see in the church, is that we really suffer to repent from our sins and to turn and trust Jesus because we don't meditate on the good news of Jesus enough. When we come to the Lord's Supper table, when we take that meal together, it is an opportunity to do a check in our heart together as the body of Christ. It is an opportunity for us to examine our heart, to be reminded of the gospel, and to turn to trust Jesus. We, we hear the song being played, we, we pick up the elements, and, and while the elements are in our hands, we are thinking about Golden Corral. We know that it's important because we we do it once a month, but we're really thinking about what's going to happen after we leave church. And we chug the cracker, we chug the, the juice, and we go on about our day. And many of us in here, we fall between one of these two extremes. We underestimate it or we overestimate. And it's important if we are going to fight idols in our lives that we see why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Because there is a message in the Lord's Supper, a message that we ought to know well, a message that we ought to preach to ourselves daily. Jesus instituted the Lord's table in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29, we see his words there. And he instituted as an ordinance. And the Lord's table, the Lord's supper was meant to be a a fellowship meal. It's a meal that declares we are able to eat in the Lord's presence because our sins have been paid for once and for all. When we gather together on a Sunday and when we eat of the Lord's table, we are making a declaration that we are in the presence of the Lord, enjoying this fellowship together. Because there was a sacrifice that paid for our sins once and for all. Now Jews, they would have been familiar to meals like this, but it would have looked a little different. 
They had times of the year that they would have eaten together after making a sacrifice, and, and they would have reflected on how this, as a result of this animal dying, and as a result of what happened in, in Egypt and the blood being put on the post, that they were able to live. But that it was an ongoing thing. There was a continual sacrifice that had to happen. But we, as Christians, we celebrate one sacrifice, once and for all, the fact that Jesus died once, and it paid for our past, present, and future sins. It is a superior meal. The Apostle Paul says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. Speaking of this cup that Jesus lifted up when he was with his disciples in a secluded room, which was the third cup of the Jewish Passover ritual. He says, this cup that, that we lift up, is this not a, 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 a representation of the blood of Jesus? Are we not participating in the blood of Jesus? What does he mean when he says participating in the blood of Jesus? The word participating is the same word where we get fellowship for, from. It means to share to have things in common. When we drink the cup and when we eat the bread, we are declaring that we share in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We take it in and we savor it. And we say, what Jesus has done for us is now an intricate and intimate part of our life. What Jesus did on the cross, he made a way for us to to be in fellowship with God. When we take that cup, we're saying that forgiveness is now ours. That peace with God is now ours. That we are now priests of God because the veil was torn. That reconciliation is now ours. That a wall of hostility is now ours. That it is finished. That he accomplished everything that he said he would accomplish. He's saying, Corinthians, when you gather together weekly, they would have been taking this weekly. You are missing an opportunity to remind yourself of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Some of you are overestimating it, and some of you are underestimating it. You are missing an opportunity to lay aside idols and to take hold of Jesus afresh. The Lord's Supper is a declaration. When we take it, we declare together, by the grace of God, I am still abiding in Christ. I am still trusting in him. I am still being kept by him. Jesus declared in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Who, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. When we partake in the Lord's table together, we declare, Jesus, we believe you. You fill our hunger. You quench our thirst. And every other idol and every other table leaves me empty. Your Bibles, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? What does he mean in the blood of Christ? What do we mean when we sing the nothing but the blood of Jesus? 
talk about blood in the Old Testament, we learn that life is in the blood. So whenever we talk about the blood of Jesus, we are acknowledging that Jesus' blood left his body, that he died on our behalf. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are saying we recognize that the death of Jesus has now purchased a life eternal for us. It says the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Is it not a sharing in the sufferings of Christ? John chapter 6. Jesus says these words to some people who were following him. And they were following him because of what he could give them. Not out of who he was. And this is what Jesus said in order to shock the crowd and to turn them away. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my body is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of of the Father. The bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When we eat of the Lord's table, we are saying amen. But it's important that we understand that when we eat of the Lord's table, that we are not literally eating the body in the bread of Jesus. That's what Catholics believe, and I know we have a number of people who are used to, who got saved and and came out of Catholicism. Catholics believe that at the moment of when they take the Lord's Supper, that the, the bread and the wine is then transformed into the actual bread, actual body and blood of Jesus. That's what they believe. But that's not what the, the Bible teaches. And Lutherans believe that the bread, when they take it, that it actually contains the body of Jesus. They have a saying that says Jesus is in it, Jesus is with it, and Jesus is under it. But that's not what we believe when we partake of the Lord's table. What do we believe? We believe that when we eat from the Lord's supper table, that the elements symbolically represent Jesus. We're not actually eating his body and drinking his blood, but it's just a representation of him. And some say, well, Jesus said that we are eating his body, so we need to take him literal. But Jesus also says that he's a true vine. He also said that he's water. We know that he is not water. We know that he's not a tree. He's saying that when we eat it, it it represents him. Look at the text. He continues to talk about the the Lord's table in order to point them and to remind them of what Jesus has done to him. He says in verse 
17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are participating or sharing in all that Jesus has purchased for us through the cross. We are saying the promises that are guaranteed as a result of us putting our faith and trust on a Savior that died on the cross is now ours and we accept it and we are abiding in him. We are feasting on him daily. But it also is a picture of unity. It's a picture of unity. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake in one bread. Jesus was in the upper room. He broke one loaf of bread and he shared it amongst the disciples. And that represented the fact that Christians are, are to be unified and we are to be on one accord. We are part of one body. Now, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we don't share one piece of bread. Right? We don't break it and then have two lines and everyone touches and it's more Uh, for sanitary reasons. Some churches do. But the way that we participate in this picture of unity is by waiting to take the Lord's elements at the same time. So we eat our bread together and we drink our, our, our juice together. And that represents that we all are on the same team. We all have been blood-bought. We all recognize what Jesus has done for us. We all recognize that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God saved us. We recognize that the Holy Spirit has regenerated, has given us new life and new desires and new tastes. We recognize that the old man is being crucified daily. And that Jesus is Lord and we together announce to the world and those who are watching and who do not believe, yes, we may seem a little weird, but we have a reason to rejoice. We have a captain who gave us orders who told us to remember and to do this often. Why? To do this often so that we can have a tangible symbol, something that we can see and and do and touch together to remind us that idols do not satisfy. Nothing else satisfies but our Savior. like the fact that the early church, they, they took it together often. This was probably a weekly meal that they shared in. I've been thinking and praying about, Lord, how can we, and, and are you calling us to do it? Because weekly, they would have had an opportunity to remind themselves of why. Why they are who they are. It was because Christ's body was broken. No, not, not a, a bone wasn't broken. But his flesh was ripped. Thorns were placed on his head. He died, swallowing his own blood. He was humiliated, 
nailed to a rugged and, and thorny tree in the heat of the day, stripped naked in front of his mother so that we could have life and be a peculiar people, be salt and light to the world. They would hold these elements together, reminding themselves that a Jewish Messiah saved both Jew and Gentile for the glory of his father. To reconcile dying people to a living God. Second and last point. Paul tells us to flee from idolatry and to run to something. What, what are we running to? We're running to the Lord's table. In essence, we're running to the good news of Jesus. That's what heals us from idolatry. And the Lord's table reminds us of the good news often. But we run to the Lord's table and we shun every other table. Why? Because every other table is demonic and it provokes God to jealousy. Look at it. It says, consider the people of Israel. And, and, and a better translation of this, in fact, some of your Bibles put an alternate translation at the bottom. He says, not just consider the people of Israel, but this is huge. He says, consider Israel according to the flesh. That's more of a literal reading. So what he's doing now is what he's done before. He's pointing the Corinthians back to an Old Testament example. He's pointing them back to Israel when they lived and they were saved out of Egypt and they responded in the flesh by not trusting God. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So what is Paul doing here? He's saying, remember Israel, remember your spiritual forefathers. For the Jews that probably had more weight, to the, for the Gentiles, they're beginning to understand that their spiritual forefathers were Jewish. He says, remember what they did. And what does he point to? He's pointing to Exodus. He's pointing to uh, uh, Exodus 32 when Israel, led by Aaron, when they went to Aaron, when, when Moses was away seeking the face of God. And they took their gold and their earrings and they made a calf. And they said, now, now this calf is going to represent God that brought us out of Egypt. And they committed idolatry. And that's what idolatry is, even for Christians. It is not just us bowing our knee at another God. Idolatry is worshiping God in a way that he told us not to. Because they said, we're worshiping God, but they worshiped him outside of the way that he commands them to worship him. This is interesting. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32 real quick, and I'm out your way. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses writes a song about what they've just experienced. And the song starts off real good and praiseworthy, and it takes a dip quick. <laughs> they would have been singing it like, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> you talking about me? <laughs> All right. I just imagine them kind of remixing it, taking out the parts they don't like. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. 
May my teachings drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the earth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice and God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Amen. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Verse 17. They sacrificed to demons. There were no gods. To gods they have never known. To new gods that have come recently. Whom your fathers had never dreaded. Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians to get a point across. He says, remember Israel in the flesh. Remember that when they were worshiping that golden calf, they were, all, they were sharing, they were participating in demonic religious exercise. Where are you going, preacher? Paul is telling the Corinthians, when y'all go to those festivals, even though those idols really aren't gods, he established that in chapter 8, even though they, they don't compete with God and they are man-made, he says there's something behind what's going on in his spirits. It's demonic. There are demons that are, that are keeping this going, and you are actually sharing in a demonic exercise. You are worshiping with demons. When we set aside the Lord and his gospel and allow idols to control us, when we participate and live worldly, live and edge God out of our lives, we are sharing, participating in a spiritual event, and we are worshiping demons. That's why, that's why we got to guard our hearts with all diligence, pre Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, from out of it flows the issue of life. When we are not, how do you guard your heart? Uh, uh, David said it's by, by loving the word, by hiding it in your heart. He said, got to guard it because our hearts are tricky. They, before we know Jesus, they are, are wicked and deceitful. Who can know it, Jeremiah said. But even once we get saved, that, that old man, those old remnants still want to pull us into the world and to get us to eat at Satan's table. And we've got to guard it by looking to Jesus. Passive Christians. You, if you're a passive Christian, not actively pursuing Jesus. You will fall into idolatry. And find yourself back in the same hole that Jesus pulled you out of. Christian life, we learned last week, is hard. It is narrow. 
But God has given us grace. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. He's given us the Lord's supper in order to help us. He's given us his spirit. And when we cry out to him, Abba, Father, he comes to our aid. And we can go boldly before the throne of grace and find help in our time of need, Hebrews 4 says. We have a savior when we do worship false idols. And when we do fall, I said when and not if, when we do fall, we have a savior when we confess our sins who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us for all unrighteousness. We have a mediator and there is only one mediator and his name is Jesus. There's only one way to God and it is through Jesus. There's only one way to the father. It is through the son. There's no pluralism. There there is no polytheism. We are a monotheistic people, a one God, one Lord, one baptism person. Is there one way to heaven? Yes, there's only one way to heaven. And if you believe and are trying to make amends by merging two religions together, by saying all religions are the same, you are worshiping demons. Jesus did not shed his blood on a cross so that his bride would be married to two men. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that there would be one union. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in a table of demons. So, dear Christian, as Paul said in verse 14, therefore, my beloved. Why does he call him his beloved? Because he loves them. Because he doesn't want them to be deceived. Because Revelation 21 8 says that all idolaters will have their partake in the lake of fire. So he is pleading with them with a, a pastor or overtone, eat from one table. And I plead with you by the grace of God to look to Jesus and to eat from one table. This isn't Thanksgiving. You can't just go from house to house. You've got to eat from one table. Make up your mind, resolve in your mind that you are going to live for Jesus. I know it's hard, but as the writer of Hebrews said, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. You ought to look to the one who has shed his blood and be set free. In your own strength, you can't do it. In my own strength, I cannot do it. I am an idolatry. My heart continues to make factories. But the Holy Spirit comes with his wave of fresh water and rinses those idols out. And they start to build again. The Holy Spirit comes again, rinses it out. It starts to build again. The Holy Spirit comes again and rinses it out. That's the life of a believer. Life of a believer is life of a repenter. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's how he ends. You say, well, in God perfect, how, how is he jealous? This was a stumbling block for Oprah Winfrey. She said that she had a hard time worshiping a jealous God because he has more than she does. But as Simon uh, Kistemaker says, 
So scripture reveals the dire effects of sinful jealousy. In the Old Testament times, Joseph's brothers were jealous and sold him to Midianite merchants on their way to Egypt. But in the New Testament era, Jewish leaders were jealous of the apostles whom they jailed and flogged. But jealousy is also ascribed to God, but his jealousy is a sinless, righteous sentiment by which he protects his holiness. God has a right to be jealous because God owns us. And he purchased us. Husband has a right to be jealous of his wife if she is having an affair because they are in covenant together. Not off of mere suspicion, but off of a covenant being break. Going to go to one more place and then we'll close. Paul points them and he says, shun the table of the world for it's demonic. James chapter 3 tells us that the world's wisdom is demonic and it's, it's chaos, it's confusion, it's brokenness, it's selfishness. The wisdom of God brings peace and order and love. Then we read this in James chapter 4. This is absolutely breathtaking. So just draw your attention in for two minutes and we're done. It's breathtaking what we read. The Holy Spirit working through James speaks in this way. says, starting at verse 4, you adulterous people, you idol worshipers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So why is God jealous? Because he has given us his Holy Spirit. And when we are living worldly, when we are living life according to our own advantage and not to the advantage of Jesus, the the Holy Spirit who who knows the mind of God is communicating with God and and God in heaven is jealous, he's yearning, he's, he's wanting to be with you. He's wanting to talk to you through his word. He's wanting to commune with you as you commute to work. He's wanting to show you a a better path, a path of peace, a a path of wholeness, a, a path of holiness. God is jealous over me because he wants me. He wants you. Verse five. How does God respond when we are idolatrous, when we, his children, are committing idolatry? Does he necessarily come down and swoop us and and kill us on the spot? No, this is breathtaking. Look, but he gives more grace. Therefore, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does he say? Even when we are in our idolatry, that God is gracious. And he begins to draw us to himself with his kindness. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. He gives us another chance. Another chance. That other chance isn't, we don't know when that last chance is guaranteed. But look at how he expects us to respond. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. How does he tell us to to respond? He tells us to respond, verse 7 and verse 10, by submitting, by humbling ourselves, by making ourselves low. By acknowledging that Satan is out to destroy us by resisting him, by being broken. He says, stop laughing. It's not a game. Be broken and mourn. He says, become gloomful. Recognize the state that you are in and humble yourself. Make yourself low. But it's not just physically changing things. He wants your heart. He says, cleanse your heart. Get to the root of your idol. Why are you... Going away for God. What do you want? Is it significance? Is it comfort? Is it control? You are seeking to be Lord of your own life. He's saying turn from being Lord of your life and turn to Jesus and submit to him and say Jesus is Lord. It's better. It's far better. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. For either you will love one or hate the other. Close with this story. There's a pastor friend of mine who I love dearly. And he had a young disciple that was zealous. He was learning the Bible, soaking it up. But I saw that there was an issue. And I told him, I said, brother, he's got a lot of head knowledge and he's really intelligent. But he's in a dangerous place. I said, every time I talk to him, he's talking about alcohol. And I've heard that he shows up at Christian parties and brings alcohol. And yes, it's a Christian freedom to drink, but he is, he's holding on to this thing a little too tight. And it might be because he has not yet given up the world. He is celebrating this on an equal level as he's celebrating Jesus. It wasn't a month and a half later that I got a call. They had left the church and was pretty much becoming engulfed back into the world. There's some remnants in us, and there's some things that our flesh wants us to do, but we, by God's grace, by looking at Jesus, we've got to put them to death. We've got to... Say, Lord, help me not to give Satan a foothold. Help me to see Jesus and to cherish him. What would your life look like if you slowed down and meditated on what Christ has done for you? If you didn't overestimate the Lord's table, but if you didn't underestimate it, what would your life look like if you valued the Lord's table and you saw it more than just kind of paying a bill? What would your life look like if you let other believers in your heart to help you to fight against idols that have controlled you, what would your life look like if you made up your mind to stop playing church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Pray that you were pleased with my labor presentation, but I also pray that you were pleased with the way that your people listened to it. 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Thank you for being jealous, for not allowing us to go whoring after false gods. Amen.